Good morning. As it says in the bulletin, the scripture reading for today is Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 17. You may wish to find it in the Pew Bible. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who gives speech to mortals? Who gives them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, What of your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he can speak fluently. Even now he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees your heart, his heart will be glad. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you what you shall do. He indeed shall speak for you to the people. He shall speak and serve as a mouth for you and you shall serve as God for him. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, We are continuing our series of sermons, and this is the third in a series. We're looking at the life of Moses, the towering figure of the Hebrew Bible, uh, the man who shapes and offers the defining story for the Jewish people, and the man who uh, stands as the backdrop for everything that happens through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And our aim through studying the life of Moses is is not just to learn about an historical figure who lived thousands of years ago. Now, we are going to do that. We are doing that. We're learning a little bit about his life, about where he grew up, the conditions in which he was raised. But that's not our primary aim. Our primary aim is to ask, well, what do we learn from his life about our lives today, about God's will for our lives, about how we hear God's voice in our lives, our struggles and fears, how we respond to God's call on our lives. And so we're really asking, by looking at God's actions and work in the life of Moses, what do we learn about God's work in our lives? And how do we learn from Moses about our own struggles and our own challenges and God's faithfulness in our lives? So that's our aim. We're learning about Moses, but through Moses, we're seeking to learn about God's work in our lives. And last week, Deb preached from this amazing encounter that God has with Moses at the burning bush, this bush that is that is being uh, inflamed but is not being consumed. And Deb talked about the importance of paying attention and noticing God and intentionally pursuing intimacy with God. She, she quoted um, Charles Stanley, who is the great 20th century preacher from the South, the father of Andy Stanley, who said, it is your intimacy with God that determines the impact of your life. It is the intimacy with God that determines the impact of your life. And I 
love that thought. Um, and today what we're going to do is we're actually continuing the dialogue that God and Moses have at the burning bush because it really takes place in two parts. The first part of the dialogue of God and Moses at the burning bush is God establishing the relationship. God is first calling Moses to himself to belong to him. And that's what Deb preached about last week. And then Today, it moves into the next chapter, into chapter 4, where then, now that the relationship is established, God is now calling Moses to a, to a specific task, which is a good way of reminding us that when, when we belong to Jesus Christ, uh, God always calls us. And so we, we belong to Christ, and then Christ calls us to his work in the world. So let me just stop, pause for a moment, and take a look at this map, and I want to just reorient us where we are in the story. And so here is, is Egypt, and of course the Nile River runs down through the center of, of Egypt, about 300 miles south of the ancient city of Memphis, where Cairo is today, is the city of Thebes, the ancient city of Thebes, near where, where Luxor is today in the Karnak Temple. Um, it's likely, now, when, the, when Joseph and the patriarchs came and they settled in the land, they settled in the land of Goshen, which is in Lower Egypt to the north. It's called Lower Egypt because the altitude is lower than Southern Egypt. And so in Northern Egypt, which is Lower Egypt, you have the Nile Delta, which is where the land of Goshen is. We don't really know exactly when Moses was born and when he was raised. He could have been, um, there are two schemes that scholars are debating, either from 1526 to 1406 BC was one scheme of when Moses lived. The other scheme is either 1350 to around 1230, give or take a decade, BC. Now, no, either one of those dates show that the royal family of Egypt lived in Thebes at the time when Moses was raised. So it's possible that Moses was actually born down near Thebes and was raised in that area, even though the, the, the Hebrews originally settled in Goshen and in the land of Goshen where most of them probably lived. Some of them may have spread out throughout the, the whole land of Egypt. We don't know this for sure, but it's certainly the case that Moses was raised by Pharaoh's daughter in Pharaoh's court. Um, and then when he is 40 years old, he has an existential crisis. And you can see up in the, in the Nile Delta, perhaps in the city of Tanis, where Moses encounters this uh, Hebrew who is being beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster. So Moses is raised in the lap of luxury in Pharaoh's court, receiving the best of privilege and education and everything you can imagine. He turns around 40 years old. He has an existential crisis. He knows that he's raised as an Egyptian, but he sees one of his kindred folk being beaten. And, and so he snaps and he kills the Egyptian. Pharaoh gets word of this, wants to kill Moses, and so Moses then flees, and that's the red line, over into the land of Midian. The squiggly red line is kind of the region of Midian, which is where uh, modern-day Saudi Arabia is. There's a little line that goes into the Sinai Peninsula, which suggests the possibility that Midian may have extended into there, because that's probably where we meet Moses encountering God at the burning bush. And then they will return and spend a lot of time in this Sinai Peninsula 
over there. Okay, so Moses goes to Midian, the wilderness, and it's a 227-mile trek. It would have taken him weeks to have gotten there. He's 40 years old about, and he arrives in this barren wilderness land uh, after growing up along the lush Nile River. And he goes to a well, a watering hole. And when he gets there, he sees that there are seven sisters who have gone to this well to draw water for their father's cattle. And Moses notices that two, a couple of shepherds come in, male shepherds, and they come and drive these women away. And once again, we see this, this sort of um, desire for justice for, uh, welling up in Moses' heart again. And he drives those guys away, those shepherds, and he brings the women back, and they draw the water out of the well, and they return home to their father, Jeff. Jethro or Ruel, and, uh, and the father is impressed by the story that he had heard about Moses kind of helping them out and coming to their aid, and so he invites Moses to come for dinner, or he has the girls go and invite Moses to come for dinner. Moses comes for dinner, and then he invites Moses to marry one of his daughters, Zipporah, and so Moses and Zipporah get married, and they begin to settle and have a family, and for the next 40 years, Moses will live raising a family of Bedouin here in this region, in this barren wilderness. Uh, 40 years out in the wilderness. I was thinking about this. When you go to this part of the world, it's majestic, and it's beautiful, and it's scary, and it's barren, and it's harsh, all at the same time. And last week, Deb mentioned about how we kind of have a little bit of an advantage in reading these wilderness stories from the Bible from here in Utah because we know about deserts and barren wilderness and the awesomeness and terror of the desert. One of the things that I appreciate when we talk about the wilderness, in our own lives it becomes a metaphor for difficult times that we go through. Every one of us will spend time in the wilderness if we haven't yet. And the wilderness is that barren place that seems lifeless. It's the hard places in life that seem really difficult. It's the battle with depression or the battle with cancer or autoimmune disease. It's walking with your child through major reconstructive surgery and the sleepless nights of worry on behalf of your child. It's the journey of grief when you lose someone you love. It's the experience of a failed marriage or the loss of a job. It's those seasons where God seems conspicuous by his absence. Those seasons in our lives when we just feel lost. I've had those seasons in my life. And I imagine many of you have had those seasons too. And if you haven't, certainly you will. Sometimes in those seasons, we find ourselves wondering where God is and whether God is working or paying attention at all. We've had dreams of our lives that have been dashed against the rocks. And that's where we see Moses, right around perhaps the age of 80 or from 40 to 80. You can imagine a man growing up in the lap of luxury with a clear trajectory to become a civic leader in the royal family by the, by the one action, now finds himself as a sheep herder in the middle of the desert, in the most barren land, 
some of the most barren land on the face of the earth. And shepherds were the lowest rung of society in those days. So he goes from riches to rags. And he's not even tending his own sheep. He's tending the sheep of his father-in-laws at this point. And he's raising his family as Bedouin. Can you imagine? I mean, picture if you've seen uh, families or children as Bedouin in the Middle East um, taking their sheep through or their goats through this, this land. That would have been Moses and his family for 40 years out there. Those are long, slow days in that hot sun. Do you think Moses would have ever wondered if what life would have been like had he not killed that Egyptian? Do you think the voice of doubt or regret ever crept in to his mind? Maybe he was thinking, you know, I was just trying to bring about a justice and I was just trying to make things right and, and change the world and now I'm out here as a nobody. And so we find ourselves sometimes in the wilderness. And here's what I want to remind you of from the text as we look at this story is that God is at work in the wilderness. In fact, God was doing some of God's most important work in Moses' life in those 40 years, preparing him for the greatest adventure that was about to come. But Moses couldn't see it when he was in the wilderness. And so in the first 40 years of his life, you could say that Moses got the best training from the external world. He got a law degree. He got an economics degree. He got combat training. He got the best leadership development in the known world. All of that God would use to prepare him for leadership. But in the wilderness, he got the best training for his soul. He learned character. He learned perseverance. He learned how to survive in the hot dry wilderness. He learned how to depend on God for survival in ways that he had never had to do before. He, he learned humility. These virtues can only be learned in the wilderness. Humility is not taught in the halls uh, or in the palace of Pharaoh, just like it's not taught in the halls of Harvard University today, sadly. But humility if you don't have humility, you've got no chance at hearing the voice of God in your life. It's the primary prerequisite to, hear, to be useful to God. And so those two-thirds of Moses' life, palace and wilderness, God will put together to form a whole leader who will do the most amazing work um, leading these people, both physically and spiritually. Remember, Moses is going to teach these children of Israel, these Hebrews, he's going to take them out of slavery, and then he's going to have to teach them a law. He's going to have to teach them economics. He's going to have to form an army to defeat enemy attackers. He's going to have to form a culture. He's going to teach them a religion. And he's going to need to teach them character and perseverance, how to face tough times, how to survive in the wilderness, and ultimately how to trust God when you can't see him. That's a big task. And God was working in both of these seasons, these first two-thirds of his life. And I know now as I reflect on my own life in retrospect that in some of the most difficult times in my life, was when God was working and preparing me for something else. 
And I think that's been true in your life too. So I want to talk just for a moment about responding to God's call and being ready for God's call in our lives because we see a call story here in the Bible just as we there was a call story when God called Abraham now God is calling Moses at the burning bush and understandably Moses isn't interested the first part of the conversation Moses thought was great God was establishing the relationship with them. God heard the cries of Israel, the cries of oppression. He wants to act for justice. Moses thinks, well, that's wonderful. I like this. I like where this is going. And then God says, and I want you to be the one to deliver them. And that's where things go a little south in Moses' mind. And he has no interest in this. But God knows better than Moses how God has prepared Moses specifically for this task his whole life, for this one thing, this one thing, this moment. And it causes me to wonder if you might ask yourself, is there one thing, one task, one purpose that God has been preparing you for your whole life too? If you look back on your life and you stack up all the experiences of your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, right now, in this day, in this moment, what has God prepared you for in the world? He's using all of it. And if we were to stack up, how would, how would God be preparing for us? And how will we respond? At the burning bush and in our lives, God was first calling Moses to belong to him, and then calling him to this task. I want you to deliver these Hebrews from Pharaoh. And so there are four objections that Moses gives to this call. God calls Moses, and Moses gives four objections. The first objection is one that comes from a place of humility. He simply says, who am I? Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Egypt Go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. I think that's a real natural thing. I know, I know myself. I've asked myself that many, many times. I've asked God, who am I to go? Who am I to be a pastor? Who am I to do this? Who am I to marry this wonderful woman? Who am I to raise these beautiful children? Who am I, Lord? So I can relate to that. Maybe you can too. And, and God simply says, don't worry about it. I will be with you. Which I think is funny. It leads to the next objection. So now Moses says, well, who are you? The first question is, who am I? God says, I will be with you. And then Moses says, who are you? Uh, he says, Moses says to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? In other words, who are you? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. I am existence itself. I am beyond comprehension. I am mystery. I am life. I am that I am. I am the beginning and the end. I am the one who makes things happen. God, the God who sends Moses is the God who acts powerfully. Okay, wonderful. That sounds great. But Moses raises a third objection. What if they don't believe me? This is an objection of his own credibility, right? Moses says, suppose they don't believe me or they don't listen to me, but say, the Lord did not appear to you. And here God demonstrates his power through three miracles. First, he has Moses 
put his staff on the ground and it turns into a snake. Then Moses, he has Moses pick the staff up, the snake up by the tail and it turns back into a staff. Then he tells Moses to put his hand into his cloak. He does that, he pulls it out and his hand's full of leprosy. Then he tells him to put it back in, pulls it out again and it's clean. And then he tells him to pull, draw water from the, from the Nile in a nod to the first plague and he pours it onto the ground and it turns into blood. So how's that for some credibility? God is saying to Moses, I'll give you credibility. Don't worry about them believing you. I will show you, I will show my power through you, and they will believe you. But still, Moses raises a fourth objection. And I can relate to this too. This time, it's his own inadequacy. Moses says to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. For thousands of years, biblical scholars have pondered and wrestled with the precise meaning of these words. The general, um, uh, the general explanation that's accepted is that Moses had some kind of a speech defect or impediment, probably a stutter of sorts. Interestingly, Notice how God doesn't deny this. God doesn't say, oh, no, actually, Moses, you really are a good speaker. No, you're, you're much better than you think you are. Oh, don't be so self-deprecating. You're really a good speaker. Mo God doesn't deny his impediment. He simply says that he promises to assist him, right? The Lord said to him, who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. I love that specificity of that promise. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. Maybe you have known in some point in your life that God was calling you to do something beyond your comfort zone. Maybe there was someone in your life that God was asking you to share your faith with, not in an obnoxious way or a judgmental way, uh, but simply as a way of sharing your heart and opening up and, and developing your relationship and sharing what's most important to you. But you're hesitant about it because you don't want to appear to be like a religious nut or something. Or you're afraid that they're going to ask you questions that you might not have the right answers to. This promise is for you. I will be with your mouth, God says. And you can trust that promise. Maybe there's someone you need to confront Boy, is that hard to do sometimes. Someone who has hurt your feelings and you really don't want to make a big deal out of it. You don't want to be overreactive and you don't want them, you know, to think you're overreacting. And, and yet it's something has been nagging you and you sense the whisper of God in your ear saying, just go and talk to her. And you don't really know how it's going to turn out. All you know is you have this promise. I will be with your mouth. And you can trust that. God's pretty good with words. After all, he spoke creation into being. Let there be light, and there was light, and his son was the word made flesh. He's pretty good with words. We can trust him when he says, I will be with your mouth. Maybe it's not someone to confront, but someone seeking. you need to seek forgiveness from. We all know about those fears, swallowing our pride to say, that thing I said or that thing I did the other day, I really blew it. And I'm, and I'm sorry. It's a hard thing to do. 
And like Moses, we want to say, God, can't you just send someone else? And God says, no, I'm sending you. I'm sending you. In her book, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, Ruth Barton mentions that although God was calling Moses to this impossible task, larger than life, bigger than he was, uh, she says that God was never calling him to be something or somebody other than who he was. God called Moses to be Moses, knowing that all the experiences in his life up to that point prepared him for this task. They're all part of his story. They all shaped him. And so it's not as if God sort of wanted to start over. Now that I've got you at the burning bush, those last 40 years, we can just forget about all those 80 years. We can forget about them. Just it's, it's in the past, water under the bridge. Let's pretend it never existed. We'll just start over right now. I've got you. Let's go, Moses. No, God is using all of that, bringing it to this moment, to this particular task. Uh, it's part of what made him to be who he was, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it's with all of that that I'm calling you, Moses, God says, to this task. Barton goes on to say that when God calls us to do something for God, she says it's always, it always begins with who we are, not who we think we are, not who we would like to be, not who others believe us to be. God's call includes, yet is not limited to, the particularities of our life, our heritage, our personality, our foibles, our passions, our deepest orientation, and even our current life situation. Being called by God is one of the most essentially spiritual experiences of human existence. Because it's a place where God's presence intersects with a human life. Our calling emerges from who we really are in all the rawness and sinfulness of it as well as in all the glory and God-givenness of it. Many of us struggle with feelings of inadequacy. Same that Moses felt. These feelings of inadequacy are messengers from God. They're messengers of God's grace. They teach us humility and dependence on God. In The Person Reborn, Paul Turnier writes, in this world our task is not so much to avoid mistakes as it is to be fruitful, to be more and more able to recognize our faults so as to be better able to understand the price of God's mercy and to devote ourselves more completely to him that's what makes our lives more fertile. And so the glory of God is his use of frail earthly vessels to bear eternal treasures in the world. Realizing our inadequacy stimulates our dependence on God, calls us to rely also on others as well. Once again, Moses says, just send someone else. And God says, oh, fine, here's your brother Aaron. And he's not going to do the job for you, but he's going to come alongside you, and he's going to be your trusted companion most of the time, as we'll see. Next week, we'll look at the plagues and the great exodus out of Egypt, but I just want to close with this story. In his book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat, 
John Ortberg, former pastor of Menlo Park Presbyterian, he tells this parable. He writes a parable about a little girl who's two years old, and she stands at the edge of the pool being called by her father to jump. Jump, her father says with open arms. Don't be afraid. You can trust me. I won't let you fall. Jump. She is in that moment a bundle of inner conflict. On the one hand, everything inside her is screaming to stay put. The water is deep, cold, and dangerous. She's never done this before. She can't swim. What if something were to go wrong? Bad things could happen. After all, this is her little body that's at stake here. On the other hand, that's her daddy in the water. He is bigger and stronger than she is and has been relatively trustworthy up to this point for the last two years. He seems to be quite confident about the outcome. The battle is between fear and trust. Trust says jump. Fear says no. She can't stand by the side of the pool forever. Eventually, she comes to the moment of decision. She is more than just her fears or her confidence. Inside is a tiny little spark called will. And with that little spark, she determines her destiny. She will jump or she will back away. Whichever way this little girl chooses will lead to some significant consequences. If she chooses to jump, she will be a little more confident in her father's ability to catch her. She will become a little more likely to take a leap the next time. The water will hold less terror for her. Ultimately, she will see herself as the kind of person who will not be held back by fear. On the other hand, if she decides not to jump, that will also have its consequences. She will lose the opportunity to see that her father can be trusted she will be a little more inclined towards safety next time. She will perceive herself as the kind of person who does not respond bravely to challenges. She will work harder to make sure she avoids being faced with decisions involving fear in the future. Every step of faith expands your comfort zone. Every step away diminishes it. The call of God on each of our lives is always a call to step into faith, is to take a leap of faith beyond our comfort zones, beyond what we can see. And the promise of God is that he will be with us, that he will empower us, he will be with our mouth, and that all of our whole lives, God will not waste any of it. God is using it, redeeming it, has called each and every one of us by name, first to belong to him, and then to be sent out as his ambassadors of love and grace in the world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for Moses' example. We thank you that we can relate to his hesitancy to respond to your call. And we thank you for your promise in his life and how you led him with a, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God, empower us, equip us, give us the gift of faith. And within us, we recognize 
that you have given us the free will to respond to your call. So give us the courage to know that you can be trusted and may we be like the little girl at the edge of the pool who doesn't step back but who jumps into your arms for we know that you can be trusted. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.